Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you that we as a congregation were able to recognize and honor in just a very small way all the many faithful years of our church secretary. We hope and pray that she and Dave uh, have a wonderful retirement life together. And we thank you uh, for providing us uh, with another godly Christ-like woman uh, to take her place. We pray that you would continue to lead us as a church, continue to lead the leadership as we continue to seek you and your will and what is best for your church. We thank you for your word that we're, we're not left in the dark as to what you want from us, what you expect from us, what you want to give and offer to us. It's all laid out right here. All we need to do is surrender to it. So Lord, give us the power to do that. I pray that your word would go forth and make a real change in our hearts and our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are some of the most insane, death-defying stunts in recent memory, according to MSN.com. In 2011, Frenchman Alain Robert, nicknamed Spider-Man, that's a cool nickname to have, uh, free-climbed the world's tallest skyscraper. Imagine climbing this thing, free-climbing. This is the world's tallest skyscraper uh, called the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. <clears throat> And he did it within six hours. That's an amazing feat right there. What's even more impressive is that this was just the latest skyscraper Robert, uh, Robert had climbed in a list of 70 other skyscrapers. This was just number 71 on his list. That guy must have the forearms of the state of Texas, don't you think? In 2012, Nick Walenda, who comes from a family line of daredevils, was the very first person to successfully cross the entire gap of Niagara Falls on a tightrope. It took him 25 minutes to cross the 1,800-foot gap. As much as I'm sure every onlooker was holding their breath, the funny part about this whole dangerous adventure is that once Walenda made it to the Canadian side, guess who was there? Customs officials were waiting for him to check his passport. <laughs> Apparently, it doesn't matter how you cross over into Canada, whether in the comfort of your car or risking your life to cross on a tightrope, you're treated the exact same. I'm wondering if, if Walenda's passport hadn't checked out, if the Canadian officials would have forced him to return back to the U.S. the same exact way he came. And also in 2012, Felix Baumgartner, nicknamed Fearless Felix, which I can believe, became the most famous for free-falling from a space balloon 24 miles above the Earth's surface. Baumgartner reached speeds of 834 miles per hour. That's just mind-blowing. On his fall back down to earth. <laughs> now, this is something I've had nightmares before of, let alone doing it. Fearless, fear, fearless Felix landed safely on the ground, but I can't even mentally process how this experience felt. The entire free fall all the way down. There's got to be some kind of gene in certain humans' DNA 
that drives them to even want to attempt to do any of these death-defying acts. These things wouldn't even enter my mind. But for the average human, who perhaps could be a part of the not terribly good group I referenced in last week's sermon intro, we don't have to try some crazy stunt to defy death. God has already bought and paid for that possibility and confirmation, and in his grace, willingly extends that gift out to us. What does that mean? How do we get it? And how should that disrupt the way we live out the rest of these earthly lives? As we continue this ongoing conversation that Jesus started out having with the antagonistic Pharisees, and then continuing with the surrounding crowd, the crowd has now become more increasingly antagonistic and challenging towards Jesus. Today, this conversation is reaching its height of opposition by the crowd. It won't be too much longer that they'll pick up stones to attempt to stone him to death. Here, the crowd isn't even pretending that there's some kind of more righteous people than Jesus. Now they just start making incredible and evil accusations towards Jesus. Jesus ended this section of this conversation we looked at last week by instructing the people that they don't actually know God, they don't actually understand his word, because they refuse to believe in him and everything he's been telling them about who he is over the past few years. And this is how the consistently oppositional crowd immaturely responds. So if you brought your Bible with you, I apologize for my voice. We're going to get through this together. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 48. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 8, verse 48, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But this is what we read. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? We've talked before about the Jewish people's hatred and discrimination towards those who were ethnically and religiously Samaritans. Samaritans were only half Jewish, and they were products of the pagan Assyrians forcibly intermarrying with them when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel about 300 years prior to this passage. Over those 300 years, the Jewish people and the Samaritans traded attacks and demoralizing acts towards each other to grow more and more in their hatred and discrimination towards each other. And this is exactly why Jesus uses a Samaritan to explain to his followers how, who they were to see as their neighbors and people to show his love towards. And this is why it's so radical that he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. As reiterated by one biblical scholar, Samaritans also had an impure form of worship. They refused to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, for obvious reasons, and instead built their own temple on their own mountain they saw as holy. For this reason, the people used their view of the Samaritans as heretics as an insult hurled at Jesus. 
Now they've just lowered themselves to resort to name-calling and again accusing Jesus of heresy. More than simply accusing Jesus of heresy and calling him a name as such, though, they go beyond that and accuse him of being demonically possessed. Wow! The crowd is referring to the other time when they say, did we not say rightly? They're referring to the other, the other time that they had accused Jesus of being demon-possessed back in John chapter 7, verse 20, when he told them they were seeking to kill him. The ironic observation about the last time the people accused Jesus of being demon-possessed in this reiteration of it was that both times it's in connection to Jesus referencing their desire to kill him. They try to refute it by saying he has a demon, but in reality, they do want to kill him. The Son of God, indeed God himself, the one they claimed to worship and the one who came to earth to save them from their sins and provide the eternal hope of heaven to, the people are accusing of being connected to Satan and his demons. Ironically, this is right after Jesus revealed to them that their desire to murder him in cold blood is exactly what Satan, who must really be their father, wants to do. Instead of listening to Jesus, the people turn it right back around at him. This has not changed one bit 2,000 years later. Here we are. Jesus flat out told his disciples, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. You're nothing special. It hated Jesus before it hated you. If you are of the world, there's a very simple litmus test. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If we believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to heaven, if we believe that one needs to repent of his or her sin and surrender their lives to God, and if we hold to a clear and accurate understanding of what God simply writes out in his word and base the living out of our lives on that, guess what? We will be hated. Jesus promises it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. And really, if we're hated by the world, then we know we're on the right and godly path God wants for us. And oppositely, oppositely this is why I said this is a simple litmus test, if we're embraced and celebrated by the world, and our views and worldviews are embraced and celebrated by the world, then it is a sure sign we're on the path headed to eternal destruction. We will be hated, and we will face the exact same response Jesus has received from his own people here in our passage this morning. Name-calling, and ironically, told, we're being the evil ones. 
Don't be surprised. And even in the U.S., people are becoming more and more openly hostile to biblical Christianity, even downright attacking them. We will be called names. We've been called names for 2,000 years. And we will be told that we're being the unloving, unchristlike, intolerant, discriminatory, demonically influenced, and downright evil people. Well, like I said last week, we follow what God has revealed what is good and loving in his word. Not what the world says is good and loving. It's not good and loving to withhold the truth from people making ungodly decisions and walking the path of destruction. It's not good and loving to celebrate what God has clearly called sin in his word. It is good and loving to hold to the truth of God's standards, living those out in the love of Jesus, and telling others about the loving gospel message of Jesus in a blind, dark, and evil world. And like how we're supposed to respond to those who accuse us of being unloving and unchristlike, we must respond in the same gentleness as Jesus responded to his accusers. He didn't yell, yeah, well, you are a bunch of good for nothing, dot, 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 and escalate things further. He simply answers them and reiterates the truth he's been trying to tell them all this time. Verses 49 through 50, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, told you this before, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, what were the statements made by all the other demons Jesus responded to when he commanded them out of people? They were manipulative, mean-spirited, accusatory, exacerbating, anti-God statements. But Jesus reminds the people that all he's said and done has been to put the attention on and bring glory to God the Father. All the people have done is carry out the words and desires of the devil. But Jesus simply is only making statements that honor God the Father and not even himself. It's clear evidence by him doing that, that he has not been speaking from demonic possession. In fact, the Apostle John gives similar instruction when confronted by demons, demon-possessed or demon-oppressed people, later on when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. With everything we've been talking about lately and every conversation Jesus has had with anyone, isn't this exactly the emphasis he has always focused on? That he is God in human flesh? Likewise, anyone who focuses more on the humanity of Jesus and belittles his deity 
And that deity in connection with God's word, no matter how large their so-called church is or how many followers they have on Twitter, and anyone who focuses more on the deity of Jesus and disregards his humanity, they're all false teachers. They're leading people away from the whole truth of God's word and who fully Jesus is and will have to deal with God's condemnation. As Jesus brings forth once again at the end of verse 50, instead of these false teachers trying to manipulate and twist who they want Jesus to be and how they think he would respond to any social or cultural dilemma or situation to fit their agenda without any regard for how he's already responded in God's word, perhaps they should be more worried about how God the Father views what they're doing. He's the one who seeks those to put their faith in Jesus, and he's the one who judges and condemns those who not only don't want that biblical faith in Jesus, but openly attempt to draw others away from it. The Pharisees and other religious leaders had that exact same line of thinking of not wanting a biblical faith in Jesus and rather openly attempting to draw others away from it. When Jesus gave his instruction to his disciples, he told them, and do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So if it's not false teaching, what must we as followers and disciples of Jesus be focused on? Jesus answers that question next in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now we know from the entirety of God's word that our salvation is not based on what we can do and how well we hold to God's word, for it's only based on God's grace towards us and leading us to put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf and repentance of our sin. But a fruit of that faith is how much we strive to have an accurate understanding of God's word and how much we strive to live that out. If we simply don't care about God's word or we try to manipulate it and make it say something it was never intended to say or twist it to fit some anti-Bible agenda, then that's a fruit that we haven't actually repented of our sin and ourselves and surrendered ourselves to God and his will. That's a fruit that we don't actually love God. For if we love God, then we love his word. And we seek to know it the way it was written. And read it to get to know him as he actually is. Better instead of a version we think is better or more palatable. That's a clear fruit that we've actually repented of our sin and ourselves and made Jesus not only the savior of our lives, but the king over our lives. You don't try to force a king to do what you want, right? You simply do what the king tells you to do. So where's the mental and spiritual disconnect 
It's the sign of a truly repentant heart that we read and know God's word so we know how best to please that king. That fruit shows where our faith really is. If we're seeking to dismantle what God's word actually says and means to force into a mold of an agenda, then our faith is in ourselves and what we think makes sense and seems good and loving. If we're seeking to understand God's word accurately in order to know him better and better and in order to serve him more and more, then our faith is truly in him. For that's what God wants for us. That faith then leads to a saving from eternal condemnation to hell or the death that Jesus references in verse 51 and a saving unto eternal joy. In the meantime, we are to bear the fruit of keeping God's word in our hearts and with the way we live our lives. That keeping of God's word goes hand in hand with an eternal mindset. Are we living our lives with an emphasis on this current life or living our lives with an emphasis on what our eternity will be? This is why Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We may have lived our lives with an earthly mindset for decades, being distracted by all kinds of things the world says is important. But that cannot be an excuse for the future. What does God say is important for us to focus on with our time, our resources, and our lives. Even though that may have been the way we've lived our lives for decades, we can get out of that rut. It's never too late to disrupt our current schedules, to disrupt our current priorities, to disrupt our current ruts in exchange for a heart and a mindset that's eternally minded, a heart and mind focused on the things above and not on the things of this earth. I know I've spent a good while lately talking about what God's word says about the hot topic, social and cultural issues, but how much are we basing our everyday lives on other oft forgotten passages in God's word? How about this one? Do not worry then, saying, what are we to eat, what are we to drink, what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the pagans, the ones who don't care about God, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So what are we to do then? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. Do you live a life that's constantly filled with worry? 
It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Nothing changes what Jesus promises to his followers right now. God will always provide for our earthly needs. So why do we spend one second worrying? In fact, the only ones who should be worrying are those who have no interest in faith in Jesus. They do not have God the Father as their Father and therefore cannot have the peace that comes with rest in this promise. Don't steal peace from yourself by living a life of worry that is reserved for those who reject Jesus. What Jesus does say for us to be focused on in our everyday lives is seeking the kingdom of God above all else this world has to offer or shouts at us is important and to seek to live our lives to please him in righteousness. Likewise, how about this one? Do not be anxious about anything, but in maybe some things. Everything, everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How many times, brothers and sisters, do we default to forgetting these verses even exist? How much peace, how much spiritual well-being, and how much physical well-being due to high stress levels do we sacrifice on a daily basis because we simply don't base our lives on this incredibly practical way of living that God has already provided for us? It's all based on His will and His sovereignty. If we truly believe in God's sovereignty and in His good and perfect will for us, then we entrust all the coulda, woulda, shouldas up to that plan. Whenever we see a commercial for the latest pharmaceutical drug, there's about 20 horrible side effects that go along with it. The one side effect of simply trusting God in every situation, no matter the outcome, is that the peace of Jesus himself will guard our hearts and minds from further anxiety, further stress, and the mental and physical toll that anxiety and stress takes on us. How about the words Jesus himself said of You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I don't think Jesus could have gotten any clearer on that topic than that. And this isn't just a command to married people either. Looking at people with a lustful eye or looking at porn is a force of destruction. Here's another command from the Apostle Paul. Flee. Don't have anything to do with it. Flee 
sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but this one is special. The sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Deal with it and get over it. You are not your own. Your body is not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God created sex, so it's God who determines what the boundaries are for that. And it's really quite simple. Sex is a powerful force and a powerful bomb. As such, God created it to only be enjoyed within a marriage relationship between one biological man and one biological woman in order to be a powerful force and bomb to keep that marriage relationship and love strong and in the sanctification process of having children. Any kind of sexual relationship outside of that is also a powerful force and bomb, but one that can blow up and destroy people. It's not just sex. It's a spiritual and physical force that God himself created. That's why God placed such strong boundaries on it. How about these words from Jesus? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, either on earth or building it up in heaven, there your heart will be also. I'm talking about an eternal mindset, not an earthly mindset. How much of the finances that God has entrusted to us for His glory, so they're really His to begin with, are we using to glorify ourselves and consume ourselves? And how much are we using to further God's kingdom and glorify Him? Similar to our finances, how much of our time are we using on ourselves and our own entertainment, our own desires, our own dreams? How much of our time are we using to get to know God better? How much of our time are we using to serve him in tangible ways? How much of our time are we using to be mindless or just try to escape our circumstances? Using more of your time to be in God's word and to talk to him in prayer is something that you can make an immediate change with today even. Using more and more of your time wisely to be productive and not mindless can also be an immediate change. If you don't feel like you're using much of your time to serve God and his kingdom in tangible ways, look for and find ways that you can. In short, Paul writes, whatever, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Husbands, how about husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And wives, you're not off the hook, so you can stop glaring at your husbands now. (laughs) How about, nevertheless, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife, the same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's often been taught by preachers that Paul needed to give these as commands to husbands and to wives because it doesn't come naturally to them. It doesn't come naturally to a man to love his wife with the sacrificial love of Jesus, especially when he doesn't feel she deserves it. And it doesn't come naturally to a woman to respect her husband as the spiritual head of the family, especially when he doesn't deserve it. So this is why God's word has to give clear commands to do these things. Husbands, are you loving your wives with the same sacrificial love that Jesus shows towards those he saved by going so far as to give his life, even and especially when you don't feel she deserves it? Remember, Jesus illustrated what true love is by dying for us while we were still outright enemies of him. Are you loving your wives with your time, serving her, and making sure she knows she's loved? Are you loving your wives with especially that sacrificial love of Jesus, which knows no bounds, which knows no selfishness, which knows no fatigue? Especially in connection with the verses we just read. Are you loving your wife by leading her closer and closer to Jesus and a stronger and stronger faith and leading your family to have a stronger and stronger relationship with Jesus? Wives, are you respecting your husbands even and especially when you don't feel he deserves it? God has placed him in the position of head and spiritual representative of your family, and he will stand before Jesus and give an account for how he lived that out. It's not you. It's not a coveted position either. Are you supporting him in that position and encouraging him in his spiritual growth so that he can fulfill that position as best as possible? Are you giving him the respect that that God-given position gives him. I can tell you that all with all the conversations I've had with married couples who are having troubles, that most of their issues, no matter what they are, can usually and mostly be boiled down to this, that the husband is not loving his wife as Jesus sacrificially and selflessly loves the church, And the wife is not respecting her husband. It usually and mostly boils down to that. If these two commands are focused on, then a marriage can be turned around and be strengthened into a radiant example of God's grace.
These are the marks of a loving, successful, and God-glorifying marriage. But it must be followed, and it must be lived out. How about this one? Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day and times drawing near. How much of an emphasis on our everyday lives are we placing on our coming together physically as the body of Christ? How much are we modeling that? to our families and our children? Are we modeling that being a part of a local body of Christ is sort of an afterthought after everything else we've prioritized for the week and if we have enough energy for it? Or are we modeling that gathering together with other brothers and sisters in Christ as the body of Christ is a necessity and it's crucial for a loving and growing relationship with Jesus. What are we perpetuating into the next generation? And as we gather together as the body of Christ, are we prioritizing just sitting in a pew and leaving before the pastor can get back and say hi to you? Or are we prioritizing being the church? Supporting and encouraging each other to live out the teaching of God's word? Are we bearing one another's burdens? Are we using the spiritual gifts and the skills that God has given to us to strengthen and move the church forward? Are we helping the life of the body? Furthermore, how are we to interact with one another as the body of Christ? Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. That's one sometimes overlooked way that we can show this bickering, divided, resentful, hurtful, and just downright mean world that we're drastically different. For we have the love of Christ within us. And we are being kind and compassionate and forgiving each other because we know we don't deserve any of that from God, but yet he gives it to us on a daily basis through the love of Jesus. I could go on and on about this everyday instruction that God gives to us in his word because his word goes on and on with this everyday instruction. These are just a few, but all of these and all those we couldn't get to this morning are all for our spiritual growth and our good in every area of our lives. I told the teens in the youth group a couple of weeks ago, some people see the Bible as just a bunch of rules to spoil our fun in life. But really what it is, is God in his wisdom giving us the prescription to a life glorifying to him and as a byproduct to us a blessed and fulfilled life that avoids a lot of self-imposed heartache regrets and loss 
Again, in short, if we're setting our minds on the things above with an eternal mindset and not on the things of this earth, this is what we can always trust in. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. It's as simple as that. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The most intimate relationship a child could have with their father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. But what does that also mean? If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this ongoing conversation that Jesus is having in the temple and the truths that He is revealing to us and the entirety of what God's Word reveals to us. I pray that something, one of these everyday pieces of instruction, command, teaching, hit us squarely in the chest that we may say, oh, God, I need some help in this area. Please, in your Holy Spirit, work in me, convict me, help me to surrender these different things. Help me to bring to my mind different things that I can surrender to you to change in my life from this day forward, to disrupt my schedule, to disrupt my priorities, to disrupt this rut that I'm in so that I can have an eternal mindset and not be focused on the things of this earth. This is what you have created us for. This is what you have saved us to. I pray that you, in your power of your Holy Spirit, would give us that life, to live, give us the power to live that out in our everyday lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.